I think my advice to people is that you, you really have to execute, right? So, I mean, you got to take your time and you got to educate yourself and everything, but at the end of the day, it's going to come down to execution and, and you can talk about doing things all day long, but at the end of the day, you, you, you have to stop talking and actually do it. Welcome to the Real Estate Life Podcast, where we create a life of passive income through real estate and doing what we love. In this episode, we have Gwaith Smith, who owns 1,287 units throughout the United States. He's in Dallas, Indiana, Pittsburgh, Tennessee, and Ohio. Today, Gwaith will share how he got into multifamilies while working a full-time job. We will discuss the pros and cons of buying property in other cities and other states, and how to leverage your network to find deals. Finally, we will talk about one of the most difficult parts of putting a deal together and how to handle it better. All this and much more up next. Real estate investing is changing, but there are people evolving and thriving. In this podcast, we'll listen to their stories and hopefully learn from them. I am dedicated to creating a life where I could create multiple passive income and doing something I love along the way. To me, the most important part is doing significant work and create great relationships along the way. For those that want to invest in passive income multifamilies, email me at abio at My name is Abio Ballesteros. I am a real estate investor and entrepreneur, and I want to help you live the real estate life. Welcome to the Real Estate Life Podcast. Welcome to the Real Estate Life Podcast. So today on this show, we have Gwaith Smith. Gwaith owns about 1,140 units throughout the United States. He owns units in Dallas, Indiana, Pittsburgh, Tennessee, and Ohio. We actually have an, uh, we actually own the Columbus, Ohio deal together, and uh, it's been a great experience working with Gwaith, and that's the reason why I want to bring him on the show. Gwaith, how you doing? Doing well, Abiel. Thank you for having me. Yeah, man, let's do it. So, Gwaith, um, I, w- I want the listeners to know a little bit, uh, uh, one, how you got to 1,140 units, but to me, the, the biggest achievement is how you've done this um, part-time. It, it might not sound like a part-time thing, but you've done this on the side because you actually are a full-time prosthetic, doing prosthetics. I'm not going to try to pronounce that word because I struggle with it, correct me <laughs> or wrong. So tell the listeners a little bit of how, uh, I know you grew up in New York City, you went to Madison University in Virginia, and you studied economics, and now you're doing prosthetics, a full-time multifamily investor. Give them a little quick, quick rundown on your story. Uh, absolutely, man. So yeah, I, you know, went to school at, uh, in Virginia, James Madison, I studied economics and I've always been an investor of some sort, you know, and one of my first jobs was being a proprietary equities trader. So working on wall street and basically doing day trading for a, um, for a firm there. And I was able to, you know, I was able to work in the city doing that, but then I ultimately worked remotely and I took that job to Arizona with me to, to be with my then girlfriend who became my wife. Um, and, you know, I, I've always had different sort of investments or at least had that sort of mindset. And, you know, whether that be investing in startup businesses through some sort of online platform or investing in notes on some kind of, you know, some kind of platform, obviously the equities and options, it it was always, it was always there. And I always wanted to hedge my bets. I always wanted to have something else working that I could always fall back to if, if whatever, whatever my main source of income changed dramatically, I could always slide into something else. So you know, I guess, you know, to answer the question, I mean, my, my story started back in, uh, you know, back after school and 
it, it led from one job that then led to me getting into allied health and prosthetics. Um, that was just a, a change that I think I needed at that time. I was to the point with trading equities where no matter what, I was kind of unhappy. If I had a day where I made money, I would look at my trades and I would say that, you know, I, I could have done better. You know, I got out of one too early. I, I had a bad entry point on another. So even though I had made money, I was still sort of upset with myself. And on days I lost money, I was even more upset with myself. So yeah, yeah. I kind of had that realization that I needed a change. And, and I got into prosthetics and I've been doing that for, for 12 years. And, you know, I, I got into multifamily investing, um, you know, probably five years ago and been trying to grow that business and that portfolio to the point where that will be the new full-time gig. Yeah. So you decided about five years to get into multifamilies and what was your, when did it hit you? Like, okay, you know what? I like this deal. Is it that you bought a duplex or fourplex? How did this ball start rolling for you? I, you so you either know my story or you just kind of hit it on the head. So yeah, I bought a duplex, um, I bought a duplex, duplex in, in Pittsburgh back in 16, 2016. And I followed that up with a fourplex in, in Pittsburgh. And that led to me making some connections out there. And I met somebody who became a partner of mine on a, on a 13 unit building that we purchased together. So it was an organic growth for me. I, I had that stuff rolling and then I was you know, looking into investing as a limited partner in other people's deals. And, and I did that. And, you know, that is what really helped to contribute to, you know, the unit count of sorts, but doing that all kind of rolled into, you know, getting my own deals, you know, bigger deals. So it was a whole kind of organic process. So it, it, it this is, this is interesting that, because when I started your the introduction, introducing you, I just jumped into showing everyone that you had 1,140 units that you're invested throughout the country. But just five years ago, your first investment was a duplex. And I can relate to that story because, yeah, I, I flipped over 200 properties, but my first real initial investment into some type of cash flowing property was a duplex. So once you get a little taste of that, then you start thinking, mm, how do I how do I do more of this? And I'm pretty sure that's when it hit you. And um so then you jump to a 13 unit uh, apartment building. Let, let's start there. Let's start that, that, that second leap from two to 13. Uh, what, what was it about that deal that you saw that you were interested in? You said, you know what, I'm going to jump into this 13 unit one. Yeah. So there was actually a, a fourplex in between those two. And there was, a, there was a pretty good gap of time, I'd say, between the fourplex and the 13 unit because you know, the duplex and the, and the fourplex, it, you know, they were operating, but I definitely was new and I definitely made some mistakes in those. And I started looking with some other, you know, people and I had made a connection in Pittsburgh and we did some private lending together and we had a pretty good relationship. And it was having that, that confidence that somebody was by my side to say like, okay, let's start looking at something that is maybe a little bit bigger that we can't take down alone, but maybe we can take down together. And I had, I think I was on vacation and, you know, there was a marketed deal. We had put an offer in on it and I can't remember exactly what happened, but I think long story short, like we ended up losing that deal and we had gone through the whole process together. And, and it turned out that the seller on that deal had an exclusion with the broker and he was going to sell it to somebody that, you know, he could sell it to and not go to the broker. So it hurt the broker as much as it, as it hurt us. And, you know, the speculation was that he kind of used our offer to raise the price on, on his exclusion. And 
was what it was, but the broker calls the next day, you know, he expressed uh, sorrow and disappointment in the situation and, you know, kind of re-asked, you know, what I was looking for. And, and it's kind of funny to me because I remember thinking to myself, like, I've told you this three times and I've actually emailed it to you and now you're, now you're actually kind of listening and <laughs> wanting to know what I'm looking for. And he said, all right, you know, we'll, we'll kind of, you know, this is how it kind of works. Like I'll, I'll poke around, I'll see if people that I know have any interest in selling. And, and if so, you know, I'll kind of come back to you. And I said, okay, great. And it was probably three weeks, a month or so later that uh, he calls and he said like, look, I, you know, there's a building, 13 units, it's an Aspen wall, which is a great part of Pittsburgh. He said, um, don't know, you know, like it's, you know, guy seems open to doing it, but um, we won't know until we try. So he's like, you have interest. I said, yeah. So he he got me the information that that I needed. And um, ultimately we put an offer together. And uh, after some negotiation, we came to an agreement and that was it. It was the beginning of the uh, the 13 unit. And the, so you, you purchased this, was it a distress sale or just rents were way below market rents. You, did you see those opportunities or? It wasn't distressed. Um, good, you know, good part of town. It was operating in hindsight. I want to say that the average rents were $905. And I actually recently sold this property. And, and when I sold it, you know, we had the average rents up to, I think it was 1050. So about $145, you know, kind of difference in average rent from when they purchased it in, in 2018 to when I just sold it. So what was your purchase price on this? 1.12 million. And your exit was? 1.293. Okay, got it. So you, so you did well on this property? I did okay. So, you know, it, you sell it at 1.293 and the broker's taking a cut of that. Yeah, yeah, you're, yeah. You're paying transfer taxes and you're paying everything else. So it's, it's definitely not, you know, <laughs> yeah. it's not just the difference between those numbers. But yeah, no, I, I, I did all right with it. Okay. That's nice. Yeah. That's good to hear. Um, so throughout the process that you were rehabbing, cause, cause you don't live in Pittsburgh, you live in New York city. Yeah. And I, I know that's always a challenge. Um, you a lot braver than I was. Cause when I started buying my multifamilies, I bought them in my backyard. Uh, I was very afraid and adamant to take that leap of buying in other cities and other States. Um, you, you bought this 13 unit in Pittsburgh. And so you, you had boots on the ground locally or that's something that you winged it and you just, just, you know, little by little, you started figuring out who to work with, who to not work with. Yeah, no. So we, we definitely had boots on the ground. Um, my partner at the time, so I had a part, I, I bought this with a partner and, and that ultimately dissolved and there was a buyout, but, but he was the boots on the ground. We had, um, I had gone through two management companies with my, with my duplex and my fourplex and, you know, we brought my partner's management company into this one, but but they weren't long for the program either. Um, so I definitely had the boots on the ground. I also have family there. My wife is from Pittsburgh. So it wasn't like we were going blind. You know, we we had resources. We had, you know, we, we had other property in the area. And, and now I had my partner who lived there and he was going to be the boots on the ground on that one. So it was strategic then. So you, you knew that it was going to be easy for you to grow a business. Now, are you still buying in Pittsburgh? Um, yes. Yeah. Yeah. Um, it's definitely still active in Pittsburgh and, and other places. You know, I, I always give advice to other investors and syndicators. I, once you identify a market, uh, you know, everyone talks about the hottest markets all the time. I hear this all the time. You look at the, you look at, uh, the top guys in the business talking about the top 10, top five best markets. 
But sometimes there's markets in your backyard or where your family lives or where your friend lives or where the partner lives that there's little pockets that no one knows about and that they're doing great. You might not see them in the radars for the big, big players to come in and gobble up property, but there's little submarkets. Uh, I've done well with, with, with a small submarket here in Florida in a, in, a, in a city called Crystal River. If you would look at the demographics on the city, you'd be like, no, I'm not buying there. But there hasn't been one new apartment built in the last 40 years. It's close to a, a, a little part of town where there's a lot of tourism. My units are always rented. There's a demand for, for rental product, but there isn't a demand for someone to go and build a brand new apartment building because the rents are just not high enough. So there's little niches. So you identify a little niche in Pittsburgh where you know that you got boots in the ground, you know that the rent, you know you're going to fill up your units. And that's something that I always give investors. You know, if you're not buying 200, 300 units and you're buying smaller buildings, look at, look at your surrounding neighborhoods and, and you'll be able to see these opportunities uh, that are not in the radar. And you actually will have less competition. And the other thing is, I, I always say to leverage, you know, leverage other people. So I mean, I, I've, I've built a great relationship with my with my property manager over there, and other people. So anything I buy, he's got to sign off on. You know, he he's got to say like, <laughs> hey, like this is an area where I want to manage. Like this is an area we do well. You know, we have these properties, and like you said, yeah. we can fill the units easily. Like you know, yeah. people pay, and and there's like like exactly what you just said. Like there yeah. there's to have that knowledge of the market and to know the little niches and to know like, Hey, you know, this area has, this street has this demographic and, you know, it, there may be a language barrier. He's like, but it's a great tenant pool. And he's like, and you know, it's like, they're actually, they're great tenants. And, yeah. you know, it, it may scare some people off, but if you know it, it's, it's great. Yeah. And, and it's, and, and we use that. I, I know in our deal in, in Columbus, uh, Ohio, we uh, we make our property manager work and uh, you know help us underwrite local deals there and see what their feedback is. So that's that's a great point to you know get your property managers to give you their feedback, their underwriting, their walkthrough, their perspective because they they really know locally what's happening and what's not happening. Um, so I know me and you always use that with uh, with the property management Sundance that we use. Uh, we have them running around all over Columbus trying to figure out if that's a good deal or not. Yeah. Uh, that's a good tour. Um, what would you say when you were putting this deal together? What was one of the most difficult things that this deal had? And how did you resolve that problem? So I'd say the most difficult, uh, the most difficult thing in, in putting the deal together was the selling, the selling party. So the selling party was kind of certifiable. Um, two brothers and it was a long process going through the financing and we had, we had used a, uh, you know, we had used a lender who, you know, you're familiar with and you're familiar with my feelings on this lender. Oh, okay. Yeah, it, yeah. Just, it, just, it took for, it took forever. I and, know which one you're talking about. We're not going to name drop them because yeah. we're not going to get sued, but yeah, I know yeah. what you're talking about. <laughs> so every time that, you know, we said that we, we had what we needed to close and, you know, the lender was going to sign off on it. They would ask for one more thing. And it, it just went on and on and we had to use an extension and I think we had to use, yeah, one extension, only, only one extension, one 30 day extension, but still it went to the wire and it went to the last day and I was closing remotely. And what happened was the, um, the two brothers, they went, you know, to closing, I had pre-signed all my stuff and, and was, you know, signed remotely. So the lawyers are there, the, uh, property manager, 
at the time was going to go there, but he was a little bit late, but there must've been 85. Like I checked my phone and there was 85 missed emails. Oh yeah. And what happened was that the sellers walked away from the closing table and I'm like, what the, what the heck happened? Right. the, The long and short of it was they, they wanted the money before signing the contract. You know, like signing signing the closing document. They wanted in in their bank account or in the title company's bank no, account. In their bank, it was in the title. It was in the it was in escrow, and they wanted. And that was it. not good enough for them. That was not good enough for them. Like I said, oh, there wow. was a little bit of a. I've never seen that. Religion. Yeah, never nobody. That nobody. <laughs> so, so they wanted the money in their bank account prior to them signing the settlement documents, and everybody said, "No, that's that's just not how we do it," <laughs> you know, and. Um, so they ended up storming out of there. And as a property manager tells a story, he's walking up the stairs of, of you know, to the closing room and um, he, he notices them and he's like, hey guys, just want to introduce myself. You know, I'm so-and-so. And uh, they basically told, like, just told him to F off and wow. storm by him. So I'm getting calls from the lawyer. I'm getting calls from the broker. I'm getting calls from the property manager. Like what the heck just happened? So... I can't remember if I called directly or if the broker or so, somebody called the um, seller's broker. Like, what the heck just happened? And they're like, we're keeping your deposit. Like, you guys are in violation of contract. I'm like, how are we in violation of contract? What did we do? We went to the close. We came to the closing table right into the close and you guys wouldn't close. And he's like, you're outside your window. Well, he was a day off. So they thought that the, that the closing window was the prior day, but it was actually... Um, that day. So, you know, I, I laugh about it. It was like the $500 letter that the, uh, that the lawyer wrote to them basically saying that they were the ones in breach of contract because they refused to close upon the terms that were agreed to. And, um, were, was it, was it their strategy to take your deposit or do you think we just, they were just, une- they just didn't know they were uneducated that they weren't, what would you think was deposit. They, they very clearly wanted the deposit. So like going to closing was a show and I, and I feel that them say like, they need to come up with a reason to, to not close. Got their it, reason was it, like, it, Hey, it, you know, it. I want the money before I sign, you know? The, so, the, um, so anyways, we, we ended up closing the next day, but it, but it cost like, it cost a lot of money. Correct. Back a day because all the, correct. all the corporations were set, all the, um, you know, every, everything was set for closing on the previous day. And they actually went to this, this guy's house and I can't remember how they did it, but like, they got him to sign and then we, you know, we closed and we got the, uh, I remember we got the, we got the keys and we got everything. And, and there was, there was a concession that we agreed to during, um, during due diligence. And I think they were supposed to give us a check for like $25,000 or something. And my lawyer didn't get it. And I remember saying, man, we're never going to see that money now. You know, <laughs> like, we're never going to see that money. But lo and behold, um, they sent it over. So, <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, that's, uh, you know, th- I, I see this deposits, the disputes and issues all the time. And, you know, the bigger the deals gets, the bigger the deposits, the, the more attractive the deposits become in, in a transaction. So I, I, I say that is probably one of the most stressful things as, as an investor, because a lot of times, you know, we're buying these deals and we're under the gun. The timeframes are tight. We're getting financing and let's be realistic. Lenders are just, they're just not hitting the deadlines. Um, very few lenders are 
are are going to hit the deadlines that we have in the contract. It's 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 always it's always a difficult thing, and it's not just all their fault. It's just the paperwork, the guidelines, especially now, the COVID restrictions. The, the guidelines are so strict now. Like you really got to give yourself enough time on that contract now to really protect yourself and your deposit. Um, it's funny not how to say they are though, you know, like when, when you're, when you're first kind of sizing up the deal about oh, how, yeah. uh, how quickly oh, yeah. they can close and oh, yeah. oh, how they yeah. never miss a deadline. <laughs> oh yeah. No. Yeah. It's a, it's, it, it sounds great in the beginning. Yeah. And then when you're, when you're in the trenches, it's like, okay, this is not what I signed up for. Um, every deal, I, I always say every, every transaction, every closing, it takes like a, it takes a couple of years out of you, man. It, you know, like it's, it, it, they're stressful. They're stressful. It's like all hands on deck, um, especially when you have hundred, two, three hundred thousand dollars deposits. It you know that's that's your hard earned money. It could go away, especially when you have a seller or or a buyer who is not co op, who is not friendly. Yeah, some are very motivated. And they just want to sell, and they're they're willing to wait and work with you. There are some that are just are thinking about. I'll take that deposit and get that backup offer I got that's higher. Yep. So especially when you're getting a great deal. Uh, if you know you're getting a steal and, and you know that that seller is 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 getting backup offers and people are just blowing them up, you gotta you gotta make sure you execute that sale. Um, that's definitely we, we, uh, we've talked about that before about great deals and you know you got to get aggressive sometimes of great deals and you you get tight deadlines and you get you know so you're taking up more risk in the beginning but. You know, what, what sort of great deals are, are people getting these days where, you know, you get the, you know, the 45 day due diligence followed by the 60 day close. You oh, know? Yeah, yeah. No, I just lost a, a deal recently where uh, the buy my, I lost the deal. My offer was a bit higher, but I lost the deal because he went zero day inspection. And I was like, ah, it, it, that, that one, you know, and, and it was just, he just was so confident. The deal was great, but he was just so confident in the deal. He went zero day inspections and took me out. I was, I was higher. So it's competitive. It's competitive. The multifamily game has gotten very competitive and, it, and you've got to have an edge. Uh, that's why whoever has the cash and doesn't have to go through financing will have an edge always. Uh, I think that that's one of Blackstone's uh, business model. Uh, uh, they, they, they are liquid and are able to buy a property cash and then raise capital from their investors and, and, and get their money back out so they can be liquid again to acquire again. It's a great model. So, uh, you know, whenever we have the chance, we try to copy that model. Much smaller scale, though. Yeah. But, uh, yeah, it is. So, Kuwait, I, I know we all have, like, big failures. And I, I could tell you my my biggest failures in the business, there's many of them. Um, but one specifically that I never forget is just I, I've gone over, I already leveraged myself. Um, and Or just growing too fast and just overextending myself, buying too many single-family assets. And I went through that. Uh, through that heartache, what would you say has most recent in your, in this industry, your biggest failure and what did you learn from it? That way the listeners could, we could probably save a book or two for the listeners by learning about these failures. Yeah, no, absolutely. So, I mean, we can go on and on about, about <laughs> this. So, I mean, I, I'll, I'll give you uh, I'll give you the most recent one here. So, you know, coming back to this, to this Pittsburgh market, um, I had a deal, um, had an opportunity come out, you know, I'm trying to, trying to think the history here, but basically I'd offered on this deal a little bit ago. I saw it come up and, um, you know, my, my offer was such that it didn't get a counter, you know, and 
they had apparently put it under contract for a price that was, you know, fairly well above what my offer was. Um, and that's it, you know, sort of forgot about it. And I got approached by some people that were looking to place capital and similar story to what you were just saying, like kind of having the cash to do it, you know, all, all as a cash transaction, um, just based on the situation. And it kind of gave me the, the guts and the courage to go, you know, well, I guess I'm going to head of myself here, but I basically went back to my brokers that I know in, in multiple cities, multiple States and told them, Hey, look, I might have some capital to place here. You know, what do you have coming up? Um, anything worth looking at? And the one broker in Pittsburgh with, with that deal that I had offered on previously said like, Hey, you know, would, would you mind taking a look at Skytop again? And I said, yeah, what happened? So she gives me this whole story about, you know, the previous buyer that they had under contract had, you know, sort of backed out. Um, they, they put a couple of things under contract, ended up going with another one. And the, the sellers were a little bit put off by it. It was an out-of-state buyer. They didn't have an in-state um, kind of backup offer to go, to go with. And even though I'm not local to Pittsburgh, I do have local resources there. And, and part of the selling group knows my property manager. So the fact that we had that relationship and he was going to be part of that deal, um, it made us an attractive buying group. So we got we got an LOI accepted um, about 100k under a, another offer that they had, but they were willing to to sell to us at a little bit of discount because we got aggressive with terms. I took the financing contingency out because I thought I had this cash buyer lined up that if all else failed, he would come in. We would just use his cash. I think I had us at like a 15 day due diligence. Um, followed by a 30 day, you know, 30 day close with the option to extend another 30. And so in doing this, you know, we, we had to run title and we didn't, you know, it wasn't getting it back in our due diligence period. So we knew that our money would be going hard at the end of those 15 days. So we spent money on title ahead of time before getting the contract signed. We were getting all of our due diligence materials, um, I had, you know, our, my lawyer knew the other lawyer and they were working really well together. So, so basically like we're just, we're, we're kind of accumulating all these fees. Like we're going through our due diligence process. We're spending money while not having the property locked up under contract. And, you know, I can go back and tell you <laughs> kind of like <laughs> how and why and everything, but yeah. you know, maybe I'll, I'll come back to that. But basically at the end of the day, um, we were missing a couple leases, right? And we wanted to see what those leases were. We wanted to know why they were missing. And we didn't end up signing the contract that day. And I got a call direct from the seller that evening. And um, he was just like, man, he's like, I hate to do this to you. He's like, it's a, it's a really kind of crappy thing that I'm about to do, but we're gonna, we got this last minute offer. It's significantly higher. He's like, you know, the, the terms are significant. Oh, it's, you know, they're coming in with hard money day one. They owned a surrounding like 600 units. And this was a, this was an 89 unit property Yeah, that was right in the middle of it. So it was yeah. like their missing puzzle piece. And they were, they were just going to beat anything that I came back with. So I even said, you know, like, listen, do I even have a chance to to counter like do, are you, do i even and he's like i'm not even trying to do that to you you know <laughs> you know he's like it's it's not about that brutal and and i had to get off the phone you know i got you know like i had to be like listen man i was like as much as i appreciate the call i'm like you know, I, I i think i have to digest this a little bit because I, I didn't want to ruin the relationship you know i didn't want to 
you know, I didn't want to start. Yeah. You didn't want to curse them out. You didn't want to curse them out. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) So (laughs) so as much as I didn't, you know, do that to him, I kind of did that to the broker. Um, Yeah. 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 yeah, Because Hey, where do you get this other deal? Right. And how many times did I speak to the broker about us not being, you know, signed under contract? And are you, are you shopping this behind my back that I was assured that she wasn't? So she was, she heard it a little bit. But yeah, so basically going back to the failure part of this. Did, like just I, I had, let, let me ask you from the beginning was did you have a signed LOI? Yeah. But no executed contract. Correct. Ah uh, that that's it right there cuz th- there's something that that investors don't know about and I didn't know this either. An LOI, a signed LOI, it's practically doesn't mean anything. It's Correct. just an it's agreement but it's it's not a it's not a contract. It says it. It says it in like the first line. It's a non-binding agreement. It's, yeah, it's non-binding. So as soon as that LOI expires, there, you know, there, they. I had a deal very similar to yours, and and I saw that they were delaying the LOI, and the attorney wasn't reaching out to my attorney, and they just let it run. Same thing that you went through. So what, what would you say you would do different, or what would you do that would never happen to you again in a situation like that? Okay. So, yeah. So this is what I said, like, it, it'll kind of feed into it. So go, let's go back to the, the 13 unit for a second. I put that, I, I went to sell that and signed a contract of sale back in July and just sold it in January. And wow. it was a fairly vague contract. So I got thrown through the ringer on that. It was a, it was a hellish sales period. And as much as I dealt with, uh, crazy sellers on the front end. I was dealing with a crazy buyer on the back end and I was living in purgatory almost. Right. And I blamed the, the vagueness of the contract. And and I put that on me for not having my lawyer make more of an iron ironclad contract. Right. And it just got, it got prolonged and that's all on me. I I take responsibility. And now coming into this 89 unit, I was adamant that that wasn't going to happen again. So I was looking for that ironclad contract to sign before getting this thing locked up. And what ultimately happened was that we took too much time making that contract ironclad. Yeah. In that yeah. we lost the deal. Yeah. So, yeah. you know, what do I learn from that? And like, what's the failure is like, there's, there's no right or wrong, right? It's you always got to feel it and you can't be too far on one side or the other. It's you, yeah. you know, you, you need to, you need to feel the vibe and you need to get things locked up, but you can't, you can't just lock them up with some vague kind of contract, you know, like there's always going to be negotiation, but you got to, you got to know when to say like, okay, I'm comfortable enough to sign on the dotted line and we can figure the rest out without being thrown into some sort of purgatory for perpetuity. Yeah. Agreed. Uh, 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 I, I, there's, um, there's a way of getting deals that, you know, we here at SAR Apartment Capital, I mean, we don't send LOIs. We, we send contracts. Sometimes uh, sellers are adamant about it because it costs money for them to hire an attorney to review it. But when, we're, when we like a deal, we don't send an LOI. We always send a contract out, at least so they can get an idea of what our terms are looking like and that we don't want to play around with an LOI because of that same reason. Um, so I'm a big fan of sending contracts from day one. Uh, we just did a, a deal recently where we send a contract and the seller sent us an LOI. It just did it. They weren't ready to spend money on an attorney to review our contract. So that I understand that, but automatically that allows me to know that there's other, other competitors 
there's other deals that they're looking at. And that's why they don't want to go into a deep contract with us. So I'm a big fan of, of, of an ironclad contract. I, I mean, me and you have shared the one that we use and, and um, you know, it was, it's expensive to do it, but yeah, it, it's, it's, uh, it's, it's worth it. It's worth it to have your real estate attorney write up one that is custom to your business, custom to your business model, and sometimes custom to that specific transaction uh, and to protect you and to, and to give you exits. Because that's another thing, too. There, you you want to have exits, and a broad contract won't have that. Um, yeah. And there's a lot of points in these. There's a lot of things that sellers could do to try to tie you up. But if, especially in the, in the inspection period part, if they're not providing you the right information, they're not giving you leases, they're not giving you access to the property, and they still want to tie you down, no, no, it shouldn't be that way. So, yeah, you want a contract protects you on that. There's so many things, man. It's it's funny that you bring that up because that was really one of the um, the sticking points was when I was talking to you know my attorney about what, let's let's kind of quantify when due diligence starts and like you know getting all the uh, material. And my attorney is like, I can't tell you how many disputes I've been a part of with with regards to what you're asking for. He's like the way that. I've always recommended doing it is you get all that stuff ahead of time. And when you're happy with it, you sign the contract and then that's your execution date. And then your due diligence period starts right then and there. He's like, I, I've, he's like, I've, I've been parts of disputes that have cost a ton of money where, you know, the buyer's saying, Hey, you didn't provide me with my PN with the PNL. And, and the seller saying, yeah, I did. It's, it's that back of the napkin thing I gave you, you know, and it's like, <laughs> oh, no, that's, that's no, that's no PNL. He's like, that's my PNL. It's like, and then you have like, you know, a huge legal dispute that's costing thousands of dollars over yeah. whether or not that constitutes getting the due diligence material. Oh, yeah. 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 Oh, so that, so that now I see why you were holding off on it because of that. Yeah. I, I understand that. Yeah. There, there is, there is definitely a lot of ways it could go wrong. Um, I don't know. I, I, from uh, let's talk if we're if we talk about our Columbus deal, like uh, our underwriting, we we had hardly any information. Yeah, we, we you know they were providing us very, very vague uh, information. We we didn't have the complete information, but we knew that our purchase price was a steal. Yeah, we just we were confident that we walked the property. So sometimes is the deal just makes sense. You're not going to get all the information, especially from mom and pop sellers that they just don't have it. They don't care to have it. They, you know, you, you the other thing some- with that deal is that we knew and we knew our plan was we we're going to take that fairly vacant. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So I feel like it, not that it didn't matter as much, but in terms of like what's on, like what, you know, what the leases are, the leases were not never current. Right. Like there was, yeah. Yeah. there were no yeah. leases that really yeah. Yeah. <laughs> were terribly current. Um, yeah, I could see how kind of on those real heavy, heavy lifts like that one, yeah. it's you know, it's easy to not easy, but it makes more sense. Sometimes it is easier to underwrite a heavy lift because you just know you got to do everything. Yeah, so I agree. Yeah, I agree with you on that one. Uh, great. So every everyone has their own description and their own way uh, of identifying or what financial freedom means to them. Uh, financial freedom also changes like every so often in your life. Whatever my, I, I think about my financial freedom in my 20s has nothing to do with the financial freedom that I have right now as as my way. Uh, what is right now at your point in your life? What does financial freedom mean to you? I think if I if I had to define financial freedom for me right now, it's it's not it's not relying on a paycheck from a company that I don't own. So that, like that. would be my definition. <laughs> It's that simple. I like that. I like that. I like that. 
That's a that's an interesting way of perspective in Streets of Fire. I like that one. You you're leaving me thinking about that one. <laughs> <laughs> so just uh, I, I, I want to end the episode with one final question and and just kind of recap. I mean, it's pretty interesting how you do, how how you're able to you know have your career in prosthetics and and before the show I was talking I was talking to you about that and it's a very rewarding thing that you're doing with prosthetics because you get to see what people's, how people's lives change that are missing limbs, that are missing body parts. And, you know, you actually put these, these prosthetics together and, and change people's lives. So when I look at what I'm doing in multifamily, yours is so much rewarding, but at the end of the day, you still have a passion for multifamilies and you're running both of these side by side. I mean, that's impressive. Just to be honest, that's impressive, man. I, that to me is just mind blowing that you're able to do both. Um, what advice would you give to listeners that you wished you knew five years ago before you got into multifamilies? Uh, what advice would you give to them? So it's funny you say that, like, because my, my ultimate goal is to not be doing both, right? I really want to transition into um into multifamily and into, you know, we'll just call it investing and, and building businesses full time. And I think my advice to people is that you, you really have to execute, right? So, I mean, you got to take your time and you got to educate yourself and, and everything, but at the end of the day, it's going to come down to execution and, and you can talk about doing things all day long, but at the end of the day, you, you, you have to stop talking and actually do it. Yeah. So, yeah. you know, if I'm talking about wanting to, to, you know, transition to, to full-time investor and to have that be my business, to have that sustain my way of life, you know, that's something that I personally need to stop talking about and, and start doing it. So, you know, it's a matter of kind of having the courage to do it. So right. I, I guess in the, in the grand scheme of things, that's it. It's really execute and be courageous. Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, I agree with that. I, I always, um, tell listeners that if, um, or investors and friends and family, sometimes the, the goal and the dream is so big that it scares you. So you just got to do little things to execute, little small executions, like how me and you started the multifamily, a duplex. Just get the ball rolling on that. Get Start self-managing a smaller property. So I, I agree with you on that one. Just execute the first thing. You know, I can also be, hey, calling the broker or yeah. putting an offer out there. You know, it could be even, let me go to a property that I know is for sale and just walk the outside of it or secret shop it. I mean, that yeah. was a huge aha moment for me. I remember when I was, you know, looking at bigger properties and not really knowing what steps to take. And I went with, um, you know, this, uh, this group that I had partnered with uh, as a co-sponsorship deal. And we went to a, a complex that was for sale and we just walked it. You know, we didn't schedule a tour with the property manager or anything like that. We just walked the outside. It's funny you say that, man, that, that I, you know, I did the same thing. I faked it till I made it. I walked 200 unit apartment buildings. I had no idea what to do. And I said, I, I made, I made the appointment. I even, I called the broker. Hey, I want to look at this 200 units that you have. It was a $35 million deal. I, I don't even know. I know he looked me up, but he gave me the time to walk it. I mean, I walked it. I felt it. I was like, I was just mesmerized by it. And, and so that's true. What you're saying just, Go see it. I mean, it's not fair to those brokers because you're not going to really be able to buy it, but just get that momentum going, man. Yep. Get that feeling, you know? Um, I agree with on that one. It's intimidating. It was intimidating when I used to look at the two, 300 units. I it intimidate me. Now I see them and it's, and it's all right, I could do this. So I agree with you on that one. Just walk yeah, the like muscle memory. You know, it, it gets easier yeah. and easier. I, I remember looking back at the little things that used to give me anxiety and now it's like, yeah, whatever, you know? <laughs> <laughs> 
Yeah, that's true, man. Like that, what gives me anxiety now is not the same thing that gave me anxiety, uh, you know, uh, a year ago. So I, I, you know, stress is like that. You adapt to it. You get used to it. And, um, uh, man, it, it's, this was a great conversation with you. Great. I, I really enjoyed it. Um, thank you for, thank you for allowing me to interview you. And, uh, I know that me and you got to catch up on some stuff, but, um, thank you for being on the show. Hey man, really appreciate it. And can't wait to, uh, to see what's going to become of the podcast, man. It's going to be awesome. All right, bro. Take care. Thank you for listening to the Real Estate Life Podcast. I hope you enjoyed this episode. If you'd like to reach out to me, please go to my website, www.alielbiesteros.com.